Molasses is one of those things that you are probably culturally aware of, but rarely do see it in everyday modern life. It has gone the way of the rotary phone or the washboard, a word relic made obsolete by technological advances. In molasses's case, high fructose corn syrup. But we all know what molasses is. It's dark, sweet, sticky, viscous, non-Newtonian. It has almost a whimsical quality to it. But in 1919, when millions of gallons flooded the streets of Boston, there was nothing whimsical about it. This episode, we will explore the Boston Molasses Flood, an event seemingly torn from the pages of the book Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. You know what they say about too much of a good thing. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 12, Dark Tide. January 15, 1919, was an unusually warm day in Boston. The waterfront, now barren of any snow, was bustling with activity. Days like these were called January thaws and made Bostonians eager for the spring. Residents of the North End were no different. The North End of Boston was at the time one of the most population-dense neighborhoods in the entire world. Irish and Italian immigrants were packed into this part of Boston like sardines, working the docks and providing labor for one of the biggest ports in North America. On this warm January morning, Irish-American dock workers headed to their shifts at the shipyard, overlooking the crowded bay. A police officer, Frank McManus, was making his routine beat walk around the North End. He passed the Old North Church. Above him hung two lanterns, a symbol of Paul Revere's famous ride. He looked across Commercial Street at two old immigrants from Italy, playing checkers under the statue of Paul Revere himself, arguing dramatically in Italian. Near the docks, two dock workers argued about which of President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points they disagreed with. McManus passed a boy in a Red Sox hat and smiled. The Red Sox had just won the 1918 World Series, so there was an abundance of fair-weather team pride throughout Boston as of late. He looked up at a large sign in a store window that read, Welcome Home Troops. The Great War had just ended, and the heroes of the trenches, who had helped hoist the Allies to victory, would be returning home soon. Officer McManus continued his walk, looking for any signs of trouble. Little did he know, the trouble was hiding in plain sight. The Purity Distilling Company was currently in a race against time. Prohibition was only one state ratification away from becoming the law of the land. Because of this, the Purity Distilling Company decided to make as much rum as they could before Prohibition took its toll on the alcohol industry. In order to do so, they would order thousands of gallons of pure cane molasses and let it ferment. The fermentation process would create both rum and ethanol. The former could be sold to Bostonians for a high price because of the looming 18th Amendment, and the latter could be sold to munitions companies, as ethanol is a key component in the manufacturing of explosives and ammunition. The molasses was stored in a massive cylindrical storage tank off Commercial Street. The tank was well over 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter, with stitchings of rivets going all the way down to its large concrete base. Leaks were very common on the tank, so much so that horses would wander up to the tank and lick the sides where the molasses leaked out. 
Children from poorer families would be sent to scrape off some molasses from the sides of the tank to take home. These leaks in the tank were so common that one year, the Purity Distilling Company simply painted the entire tank brown so the leaks wouldn't be as noticeable. In the past few years, there have been quite a few complaints made about the tank, especially from the workers, saying that the tank gave off an awful groan whenever it was filled to capacity. And on January 15, 1919, the tank was filled to the brim. Steamers from the Caribbean had just tipped off the 2.5 million gallon tank with a shipment of fresh cane molasses just a few days prior. The struggling, gargantuan tank sat in the middle of Boston's North End. Frank McManus had passed the tank a few minutes before. He thought nothing of it. It was one of those landmarks that you pass so often that your brain barely registers it. In fact, your brain does this quite often and quite well. It will ignore things until they present a threat. Well, that exact thing happened in Officer Frank McManus's brain at 12.30. Machine gun fire echoed through the streets. McManus reached for his nightstick, which, despite its name, works just as effectively during the day. The sounds of rattling machine gun were actually the rivets shooting off of the overburdened molasses tank. It had finally had enough. A tremendous rumbling, grinding sound rang out from the tank. Officer McManus didn't know whether to run towards or run away from the now collapsing tank. He stood frozen in indecision while two and a half million gallons of viscous molasses let loose on Commercial Street. I'm sure you know what it's like to spill syrup or honey. Now imagine that with 14,000 tons of the stuff. McManus watched a wave of molasses 25 feet tall destroy the buildings nearest the tank. The decision was much more clear now. He sprinted away as fast as he could. He turned the corner and went to a signal booth and called his precinct, yelling for them to send everyone they could, desperately trying to describe the disaster. By this point, the mass of molasses had completely leveled this fire station. The wall of molasses continued to expand in all directions. A sweet smell radiated through the north end as the molasses engulfed entire buildings and washed carriages with their horses into the harbor. Three laborers in a nearby freight yard were promptly crushed by the building they were working in. The wall of molasses slammed into a support column for the elevated train. The train screeched to a halt, stopping right before the now sagging tracks in front of it. The train passengers peered out of the train window to witness a horrifying sight. Dozens of men, women, and horses struggled in the smothering goo. Treading water can be exhausting. Treading molasses is nearly impossible. A schoolboy returning home from his morning session, Anthony Distasio, was picked up by the wave of molasses and carried hundreds of feet atop the gooey crest. The molasses, now spread blocks through the north end of Boston, began pouring into the harbor. Cadets from the nearby nautical school were the first on the scene, followed quickly by the police called by Frank McManus. They worked to keep the curious from getting in the way of the rescuers, while others entered the knee-deep sticky mess to pull out the survivors and the corpses. 
That night, as rescue workers and cleanup crews continued to tackle the incredible mess, they paused in puzzlement at the sudden ringing of church bells all over downtown Boston. Nebraska had voted on the 18th Amendment and ratified it. Prohibition was now law, and churches which had campaigned for it in their pulpits now celebrated. Men up to their ankles in the makings of rum listened for a moment and then went back to work. As more and more Bostonians arrived to help over the next 48 hours, the death toll continued to rise. The thick syrup strangely preserved the victims. A wagon driver was found nearly two whole days after the flood, inside of his carriage, like a figure from the ashes of Pompeii. The final count was 21 dead, 150 injured, dozens of horses, and a dog deceased as well. Four whole days passed before they stopped looking for victims. By this point, they were focused on the tremendous task of cleaning up the mess. Molasses had spread dozens of blocks away. Cleanup crews used salt water pumped up through fireboats to wash the excess molasses into the Boston Harbor. Bostonians were well acquainted with tossing tea into the harbor. How hard could it be to do the same for molasses? Well, it turned out a lot harder. They used sand to absorb the molasses and make it easier to transport away. But the cleanup effort in the north end took well over a month. During that time, the entire harbor was dark brown in color. The cleanup in the rest of Greater Boston and its suburbs would take much, much longer. Rescue workers, cleanup crews, and sightseers had tracked molasses through the streets, spread it to subway platforms, to the seats inside trains and streetcars, to payphone handsets, to public doorknobs, into their homes, and countless other places. Everything a Bostonian touched was sticky for years. The Boston molasses flood made front-page national news, beating out other huge news stories like the Prohibition Amendment being passed, the Paris Peace Conference, and the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. However, after the initial shock value of the molasses flood wore off, no one seemed to care much. The truth was that every one of the victims and casualties of the tragedy were poor immigrants from the north end of Boston, so the outrage extinguished quickly. So the poor people of the North End had to find a way to find justice for what had happened themselves. The reason we know so much about the Boston Molasses Flood is the many lawsuits that followed it that turned out to be just as sticky as the molasses itself. The reason for the lawsuits was a disagreement as to the nature of the disaster, specifically what had caused the failure of the tank. Three explanations arose. One, a chemical conundrum that caused the fermentation process to turn explosive. Two, anarchists sabotaged the tank because its contents were being used to fuel the American war machine that they opposed. Or three, the structural integrity of the tank was not up to specs, which made the Purity Distilling Company, now owned by U.S. Industrial Alcohol, to blame. After a class action lawsuit with well over a hundred plaintiffs that took three years, United States Industrial Alcohol was found guilty of not providing an adequate factor of safety. At the time, it was the largest civil suit ever filed against a major corporation, and is still one of the largest to this day. 
Also, it was the first time that a U.S. court ruled against a large corporation for a mistake it had made, setting the tone for business accountability that endures to this day. Some say on warm afternoons that you can still smell molasses in the north end of Boston. While this is undoubtedly not true, it actually was true up until the late 70s. While the smell of the Boston molasses flood is long gone, the ramifications of the court's decision back in the 1920s had a profound effect on the power that corporations had over the justice system. It seemed that the power still lies with the people. Let's hope we can keep it that way. Historium is produced by me, Jake Barton. If you enjoy Historium, please rate it on iTunes. It's the absolute best way to support the show. Every single star counts. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and now Instagram. If you're interested in carefully contrasted historical images, follow Historium there. As always, thanks for listening.